An influential Defense Advisory Board is out with a harsh critique of DOD's recruiting process for civilian employees. There really is no recruiting process. The Defense Business Board says DOD doesn't have a discernible talent pipeline for civilians. Now, that's a stark contrast to the private sector employers DOD is competing with and with DOD's own practices for recruiting military members. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has details on what the board found and its suggestions for reform. According to research the board did for their new report, DOD has about 15,000 people who work full-time to recruit members of the military. But across the entire department, the board could only identify about 100 people whose primary job it is to recruit civilians. And about half of those are in the Air Force. Instead, by and large, the task of recruiting on paper falls to DOD's HR specialists. But they have a lot of other jobs, too, including posting positions, resolving personnel issues, and policy development. Matthew Daniel is one of the members of the task group who led the study. He's also in charge of talent strategy at Guild Education. No matter how many good pipelines are developed and scholarships in the community and relationships that exist, there are virtually no recruiters here in the DOD for civilian talent that might catch those pipelines when the talent comes in. There is a difference to be drawn between filling positions and recruiting. Today, the DOD fills civilian positions and effectively, but there's little recruiting that's actually happening. And Daniel says that lack of focus on recruiting stands in sharp contrast with the private employers DOD is competing with for talent. Private industry saw a war for talent and they responded decades ago. They developed sophisticated recruiting machines. They specialized and continue to do so. They don't just have recruiters. They have recruiting ops positions who just handle scheduling and operations. They have sourcers who are just proactively combing potential talent to create talent pools for future requisitions. They have brand and marketing specialists in recruiting who are doing nothing but targeting talent with messages about the company's mission, values, its latest projects, and priming them for when a position does open. And finally, recruiters who are in that function as well. Among the recommendations the board approved on Friday, DOD needs to create a specialized cadre of civilian recruiters from within its own HR workforce, people who are dedicated to recruiting. The board says the department also needs to focus on building talent pipelines that mirror the ones in private industry, actively cultivating future hires, not just waiting for people to apply for open positions. Alex Alonzo, another board member who also serves as the chief knowledge officer at the Society for Human Resources Management, says there are some scattered examples of pipelines throughout the department. However, there is not a a concerted effort to integrate all current activities so that we maximize the productivity of existing resources. And so we argue that there's an important component that really focuses on developing a workforce plan so we understand the needs for a future workforce, but at the same time also leveraging tools that are available out there, such as artificial intelligence, to mine and analyze data that identifies where it is that the highest quality hires really come from. Where is it that they originate? Some competitors have established a talent pipeline recruitment function capable of identifying talent, conducting interviews within 24 hours, and achieving a full offer within 48 hours of entry into the pipeline. The scary point behind that stat, though, is not the speed and efficiency. It's that those private sector competitors are doing it with mission-critical occupation-type candidates. They're doing it with data scientists. They're doing it with everyone involved in cybersecurity. They're moving through a talent pipeline that allows them to leverage not just the individuals that have entered the pool, but also the individuals that have hit or touched base with their organization in some way. DOD and the federal government more generally is not famous for quick hiring. 
The board says DOD's current average time to hire civilians is 81 days. That's down from 99 days in 2018, but DOD hasn't made much progress in reducing it further for the past three years. Daniel says those delays have real consequences for DOD's ability to compete for high-quality candidates. It's well known in the community. We heard that candidates get discouraged about having to use USA jobs. They feel like it's a black hole and they won't get a response. Private industry is innovating on how to get hiring done more and more quickly. And in the time it takes to make a job offer from DOD, those candidates are ghosting DOD and moving to private sector jobs. The sentiment quickly becomes among candidates. If this is what it's like to get a job here, what will it be like to work here? The board says DOD also needs to focus on building an employer brand and do a better job of communicating the defense mission and the wide breadth of positions available throughout the civilian workforce. The board's research showed about 42 percent of Americans don't even know civil service jobs exist in DOD. Those that do sometimes associate those jobs with wars they disagree with or hold the view that bureaucrats are incompetent or corrupt. Now, a juxtaposition of the DOD would be NASA. NASA has moved into a focus on term roles where you come and uh, built a brand. They built their brand around a place to come and solve big problems. They know the talent profile of the folks that they're looking for are looking to solve gnarly problems, build experience and move on with their career. They've used that as a part of their employer brand in the market. That's how they're delivering messages. Based on our interviews with organizations who've struggled with both brand and employer brand, as the DOD might be said to right now, recruiters and sourcers have been given talking points on how to address candidate concerns head on and reshape the narrative with potential candidates. No such mechanism exists that we could find within the DOD, and as we've said before, there's not necessarily a recruiter to hand those talking points to today. The board says DOD also needs to do a much better job of gathering and using data about its existing workforce and its workforce needs. The study found the department doesn't have a database to match skills with its job opportunities and doesn't have much in the way of metrics about the overall health of the workforce. Daniel says that's another way in which DOD's management of civilians differs from military members. On the DOD's military personnel processes, we'll draw the comparison again. There's a platform called the Defense Readiness Reporting System that exists to help components track readiness against national military strategy. It contains near real-time reporting, and we see this as a model that could be followed for civilian uh, readiness. As it stands today, civilian readiness is not measured nor factored into the total force readiness. There is much opportunity to take existing data, make it available more widely, hold leaders accountable for improving candidate experience and drive better recruiting and richer pipelines. The board thinks there are opportunities for the department to use some of the structures it already has to improve civilian hiring. For example, military recruiters could help get people into civil service positions in cases where they don't meet the physical standards for uniform service. In the report found there's good reason to believe DOD's policy of requiring retiring military members to wait 180 days before they take a civilian job causes a lot of talent to walk out the door. It was written for a reason. However, the impact the talent strategy cannot be overstated. The DOD is investing tens of millions of dollars, if not more, in investing on talent, skills, development, training, only to see them leave for the private industry because there is no option to stay. This is an area for robust piloting testing. We saw some uh, versions of testing in this uh, in recent years. It, it is, uh, we believe there is opportunity to do more. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show 
the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. 
That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.